Matthew chapter 5, we want to read verses 6 to 9. And if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's word. Matthew the evangelist, quoting our Savior, writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, as we gather, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would go in obedience to Christ. Would you be so kind that we would encounter Jesus and be transformed by him? May we live the blessed life. May, you, may I decrease so you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I've been getting this weird advertisement on my telly, on my cell phone. I don't know if you've been getting it at all as well, but maybe you have. It's a, it's, it's a weight loss um, uh, advertisement that, that is uh, selling a gummy. You, you've been getting these? It's, it's a gummy. And, and if you eat this gummy, it promises incredible results of losing weight. And I'm not talking about like really like unbelievable results. Um, in fact, they, it, it's, it's all women that they have on the advertisement, of course, but because once, once men get married, what do we care? And, and, and so um, uh, we're just well fed. That's all, all we care about. But, but so what you have is, is one lady who, who here she was before she ate the gummies and after she ate the gummies. Granted, they don't look anything alike, but they both have blonde hair. So, so, so it shows just, just in just a few amount of time how much weight they lose. And they make promises like, like you can lose 30 pounds in 10 days. One of them was like you can lose 100 pounds in three weeks or something like that. It's crazy, crazy stuff. Now, if you're thinking that sounds like it's too good to be true, let, let, me, let me just... Uh, bring it home for you, okay? As the advert has. Oprah gets on there. And, and she tells us that this is the real deal and that it has changed her life. She's lost a lot of weight by eating these weight loss gummies. And, and I think, well, we should try that, right? I mean, I've not seen these ads anywhere else. I don't know if you've seen these ads. But, but the promises they make are absolutely incredible. But the key to the promise is not the results, it's the timing. It isn't that you will lose weight, but that you will lose it immediately. You will lose it quickly. And I find that is exactly the way we Americans think. We don't want lifestyle changes as a solution. What we want are quick fixes. What we'd prefer is to keep everything we're doing the same and yet have different preferential results. But unfortunately, that's not the way life works. Look, if you want to lose weight, we all know what it is. You need to eat less and eat better and you need to exercise more, at least burn more calories. In general, that's going to be the way to lose weight. But we like and we prefer a more immediate Results. What Jesus offers us here is the second of three secrets to the living the blessed life. Yet what it requires is not a pill or a bumper sticker slogan, but rather what it is, is it requires a lifestyle decision. We begin on this journey and as we progress down this road, 
we will live and discover the blessed life. That is to say that as we start this process each and every day, we will discover it anew. We saw last time the first secret to the blessed life in verses 1 to 3, or 1 to 5, rather, rather 3 to 5, is a humbled faith. That when we get our relationship with Jesus correct, understanding that we come to him as beggars, then we are filled, as, the psalm, as David the psalmist says, our cup overflows. And, and that is the first secret to the blessed life. The second secret is righteous virtue. A humbled faith, righteous virtue. Let's start here in verse 6 where he tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I think it's safe to say, and maybe perhaps it's too elementary to say, that uh, there is no more basic need we have than food and water. You could essentially, at least for a time, survive without shelter or clothes. You could Right. We can makeshift some shelter, a tree, an overpass, uh, 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 someone else's property. We, 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 we could find something for shelter, but you and I could not survive at all without food and water. Food gives us both nourishment and nutrients, and we need both. After all, you could survive on a cherry Pop-Tart diet. Now, I know there's a lot of Pop-Tart options out there, but if you want to eat a good Pop-Tart, you need to eat the cherry Pop-Tarts. Let me tell you, when we would do youth camp uh, growing up, and mom would let us take whatever snacks we wanted at youth camp, I'd say, I want one snack and one snack only. Get me the cherry Pop-Tarts. It is the best Pop-Tart out there. I don't eat a lot of Pop-Tarts anymore because I'm middle-aged, but you could, in theory, you could, in theory, survive off of cherry Pop-Tarts, and you would be perfectly happy at least while you were eating those cherry Pop-Tarts. They would be, it would be nourishment, but it wouldn't be nutrients. Food, our diet, should give us both. We may want the cherry uh, uh, Pop-Tarts, we may desire them, we may even been taught growing up you could eat all the cherry Pop-Tarts you want, but it would not be wise for it to be the main source of your diet. So too, it isn't just that we hunger and thirst, but what is important is what we hunger and thirst for. This is why the Bible frequently uses our appetites, our physical appetites, for our spiritual desires. So what you get, just to give you a few examples, we've done this a thousand times before. I've shown this to you before. Genesis 3, what does Eve do? She eats forbidden fruit. Genesis 25, we looked at this a few weeks ago in, in our Wednesday night study. Esau gives up his birthright for a bowl of soup. The Israelites complain in the wilderness, want to go back to Egypt to be slaves. Why? Because there they would be fed. They're hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. Jesus, the first temptation he faces in Matthew chapter 4 is turning stones in the bread. And we can give countless other examples of the Bible using our physical appetites for, the spiritual, for a metaphor of spiritual desires. But biblically what we see is that the blessed life requires both uh, nourishment and nutrients. It's that we eat, but it's also what we eat. Now, the fact that we hunger is part of life. We have desires and we want them to be filled. The problem is what we fill them with leads us down a dangerous path. 
C.S. Lewis makes this point. I think this is in Mere Christianity. He says, the Christian says creatures are, are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is a such thing as water. Men want sexual desire. There is a such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasure was never meant to satisfy it, only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. You see his point there. The problem isn't that we have desires, but what is it that we desire? That is what, what matters. And so when we chase after wealth and comfort and relationships and, and influence and, and, and entertainment and countless other things, what we're doing is we are feeding ourselves cherry Pop-Tarts. That sugar is delicious. But it isn't nourishment. It isn't nutrition. Notice Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He tells us what it is that we are to, 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 to seek out. Righteousness and wisdom, he tells us, produces the blessed life. Spend your life chasing after all your wants and needs, demanding from others, and satisfying your flesh and what you will find is many things, but it will not be the blessed life. Some of the most miserable people have everything they could ever want or need. Some of the most miserable people are the sort of people you think that if you had their lifestyle, their bank account, their career, you'd be happy. And I'm going to tell you, you can have all of those things and be just as miserable as you are now. Because the blessed life isn't based on what you have or on your circumstances. But here we see the blessed life as the things you are starving for. If you hunger and thirst for Jesus, you will be satisfied. This is the psalmist's point in Psalm 107.9. He, that is God, satisfies the longing soul and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. This is what we've been doing. We've been, we've, we've been devouring junk food. We've been, we've been adding to our souls things that will, that will not satisfy us. It will not quench our thirst. But when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we pursue Christ, we'll find the anchor of our soul. Pursue then a lifestyle of righteousness. Now, what he does in the next three Beatitudes is he shows us what are the sort of things that we should hunger and thirst for. Well, what are these righteous things that we should consider? Well, notice the, the next Beatitude tells us it is mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, let's be honest. Mercy is one of those biblical words that we take for granted and I would add, we've diluted from the modern world. And so we take a diluted modern definition and we, give, and we bring it into the biblical text rather than allowing the biblical text to define what it is we mean in our daily lives. Here's two things we need to know about this, this, this beatitude real quick. First of all, it describes positional mercy. And then we need to look at practical mercy. Positional mercy. Remember, this is how blessing works. Blessing is our divine favor, our relationship with God rooted in faith. And how we live our life rooted in wisdom. 
positional mercy is that it is positional mercy. We see that mercy is motivated by love and compassion. It is a gospel virtue. That is to say, apart from the mercy of God, you and I would not be here today. We would have no hope of salvation exclusively from the mercy of God. Remember, we come to him poor in spirit, beggars. It is the mercy of God, the compassion, the love, the generosity of God that gives us grace. Let me give you a few examples up here. We won't spend time on these, Ephesians 2, 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, what did he do? He sent us on to die for us. Same thing in Titus 2, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of anything good that we've done, but according to his own mercy. Notice here, just as love is defined by our maker, so is mercy defined by our redeemer. By definition, mercy is undeserved. The one who receives mercy does so because they are a beggar. They understand they don't deserve anything, but their last option is mercy. I know I haven't earned it. I know I can't pay for it. I know I don't deserve it. But would you be merciful to me in this situation? That is the very definition of mercy. So when God redeems us, he doesn't do it because there's a spark of the divine inside of us, speaking of Oprah, but rather it is because Rooted in love and compassion, he is merciful to us. We are not here because Jesus said with cold indifference, give them what they want, they brought it onto themselves. Rather, he said, despite all of that, he will show us the mercy of God. So we see here, Jesus is making clear positional mercy. Be merciful as you have been shown mercy. So not only is there positional mercy, there is practical mercy. Mercy is the setting the self free. Mercy is the key to freedom. Mercy does not ignore wrong done or, or, or committed against you, nor does it fail to acknowledge legitimate wounds. However, when we show mercy to others as Christ has shown mercy to us, we set ourselves free and we set the other free, which is equally important. Now, if you've been hanging around here long enough, that may sound familiar. It's how we talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that is as much about setting them free as it is about setting us free. We convince ourselves that if we will hold on to the pain, if we will hold on to the anger and the resentment and the memories, somehow we'll be better off for it. Because if I let it go, if I show mercy and forgiveness and compassion, that will mean that, 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 that somehow I, 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 I'm not taking those wounds seriously. I'm not treating the pain. Rather, what it is we're doing is we are aggravating the pain. We're adding to the, 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 the trauma and, and the, the resentment and the anger. Mercy sets us free. It, it, with mercy and forgiveness, we're saying this is too much for one man or woman to carry. I will allow Christ to handle it. Mercy sets us free. And those shown mercy then should be the first ones to give mercy. After all, if we don't, we become hypocrites. What we're saying to others is the sins I've committed against Jesus are far less than the sins you've committed against me. 
And that is frankly false. If Christ can love us with great compassion to show his mercy, we should do the same. So be free of all that garbage. Let that stuff go. Be merciful. You know, if I were to have a, 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 a jug of water right here, it's just a jug of water, regular old pitcher of water, right? And I were to take that water and I were to hold it out like this, how long do you think I could hold it? Certainly not for an eternity. Maybe a few minutes. I'm not the strongest guy in the world. But I can hold that jug of water. But before long, my arm's going to start to hurt. I'm going to start sweating. My joints are going to be painful. I may even start shaking, right? And some of y'all panics. I get water on the, on, the, on the church carpet, right? Why? It isn't the amount that I'm holding. What weighs me down is that I am holding it. So too, when you refuse to practice mercy, when you refuse to forgive, be compassionate and loving. What it is, is, is you are still holding on to something you are not strong enough to hold on to. Let it go. Drop it. Let Jesus handle it. Thirdly, we see here to be pure in heart. Chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. There are two key words here worth looking at. We must move quickly. The first is pure. Even a cursory reading of the Old Testament reveals a heavy heavy emphasis on purity. Given the fall of creation, what the Jews did was they divided creation into two camps, clean and unclean, pure and impure, righteous and unrighteous, holy and unholy. These are the two camps we have. What the Jewish system does is it provides a system by which the impure can become pure. The unholy can be made holy. The unrighteous can be made righteous. And this lies in the background here of to be pure in heart. The problem is the Jewish system created a system of religion that said that you can be pure if you look pure. If you act pure, if you think you're pure, it became a religion rooted in creeds and rituals. Jesus did not like this at all, and he confronted it frequently in, his, his, uh, in the gospel. For example, Matthew 15, the Pharisees complained because the disciples didn't wash their hands. Right now, what is their beef? Is it because that's gross? No, that's not their problem at all. They don't know what germs were. The problem is, is that the elders tell you you should wash your hands. And if you don't wash your hands, you're impure. Jesus is like, I know a lot of people clean hands with dirty hearts. The problem's the heart. So too later, Jesus will lay the smack down on them in Matthew 23, and he'll say, whoa, whoa, whoa to them, right? And, and, and not because they're horses, but because they're terrible human beings. And what they're doing is he'll say, you are like whitewashed tombs. You come on the outside, people marvel at, at the design, they marvel at the beauty, but inside is death and decay and darkness, your religion, though it looks good on the outside, you are still as impure as you were before. That's a major problem. You know this, right? Let's just say that you just got home from work. Your husband just got home from work. And he says, honey, by the way, you need to know we got guests coming over. They'll be here in 10 minutes. What's your priority? Hide all the impurities. You're going to pick one room, at least one closet, if not one rug, to throw everything underneath it, right? Because we want people to think that if our house is in order, we must have everything in order, right? Isn't that how we think? I know this. I've come visited you. Well, preach, I wish you were newer. Come and I would have cleaned the house, right? 
Right? That's the way we think. That's the way we think. That's the way religion comes to think. Jesus comes and, and he gives us real purity. A purity, here's the second word worth looking at here, purity of the heart. A purity of the heart. Clearly when he speaks of purity, Jesus has more than outward appearance, but he speaks of our inner being. This sort of purity begins with the cross when we are washed in the blood of the lamb. One of my favorite scenes in Revelation is when, 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 when the martyrs are crying out to God, how, how long will it be before you avenge us? They are given white robes dipped in blood. And that is the apocalypse way of describing purity. Blood would ruin a nice white shirt, wouldn't it, ladies? But in good theology, that's the secret to purity. Not the washing machine but the blood of Jesus. That's how you be pure in hearts. The sort of purity in heart here, therefore, has two aspects of it. One is positional. Due to the finished work of Christ by faith, God declares that we are righteous, holy, and pure. In other words, right now, by faith, you are pure in Christ. But it has a practical purity as well. This is the hard part. This is the daily struggle of becoming more like Jesus. This is the inward change with outward manifestations. This is where the rubber hits the road. The grace of positional purity will manifest itself in practical purity. And this results in the blessed life. A life lived in obedience brings peace that sin simply cannot. Remember that sin corrupts, it destroys, it divides. Purity of the heart does the opposite. It heals, it protects, it serves, it restores. Let's look finally, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Much like mercy, we, we bring our own definition to, to this word rather than the biblical one. What, what, it, what does the word peace here really mean? Ever since the 1960s, it's been a buzzword, hasn't it? Some of y'all remember. But for us... What we usually mean by peace is that peace is the absence of conflicts. The 1980s, President Reagan, what was his slogan when it came to addressing the Cold War? Very different from all of his predecessors. It was peace through strength. You remember, you remember Star Wars, right? If we can bomb them from space, they'll leave us alone, right? That's, that's sort of the Cliff Notes version of it. It's more complicated than that. But, uh, so it's called Star Wars, right? Uh, uh, with derision, but, but, but that, that, was his, that was his foreign policy, peace through strength. If, I, if my stick is bigger than your stick, you won't bother me with your little stick. That, that's, that's basically it, right? Isn't that the Teddy Roosevelt line, right? Think about it. There's a reason why bullies pick on the little guy. When there's a bigger guy to pick on the bully, suddenly the bully ain't much of a bully. We, we, we get this. And so what you then have is an artificial peace. There's peace because everyone is afraid. There's a reason why I will never be hired as a bouncer, right? Because you ain't going to be scared of this. You come making trouble, right? right? So, 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 so that is the absence of conflict, yes. But would you say even at the end of the Cold War, there was peace? Hardly, hardly. Would you say that even though the bully has been it's been relegated to the sidelines for now. Would you say that there is still peace in the classroom? I, 
I doubt it. No, biblically, peace is rooted in the idea of shalom. It can mean the absence of something, yes, the absence of conflict. What it really means is the presence of something better. The word means to complete or to make whole. And so, so what you can have then is a complex city wall that is complete and whole. There's no weaknesses in it. Everyone inside of it is safe because the wall is in shalom. It is complete and restored. So what you have then are two ideas with the idea where we got to move. I'm sorry. But you went long last week and everyone just was so happy, right? Okay. Two ideas with the word shalom here. Restoration, reconciliation. You cannot make peace without restoration, reconciliation. And so once again, we see the idea of peace is both positional and it is practical. Positionally, what we see is Christ is our peace. Can I just put up two verses for you? You're, you, you went to public school. You could read, I think, right? And in fact, Paul says it very clear. Christ is our peace, which means that in the gospel that there was, there was tension between us and God, division between us and God, warfare between us and God. And what we need was someone to make shalom, to make peace. And peace here, again, is not the absence of something. It is the presence of something far better. With Christ, we have reconciliation with God. With Christ, we have the restoration of a relationship so that it is now better than what it was before because we have Christ there who is the God-man. So, so, so we have positional peace, which means we are to be people of peace because the, the real root of conflict has been resolved in our hearts. And that positional peace creates practical peace. And here we must do the work of peace. But, but, but don't, don't, don't overthink this. This is, this is much worse than what you're thinking right now. Usually what we do is we say, you know what? We should be peacemakers. So here are four or five societal ills we need to solve. And I think, that is, I think there's some real truth to it. But what I'll find is we'll say, what we need is, is racial healing in this country. And I agree with you 1,000%. But most of us who are fighting for that are unwilling to walk across the street, pick up our phone, or send an email to set up a, a coffee appointment with someone we haven't talked to for 20 years. It's amazing. We want to fix societal ills, good, but we won't be willing to make relational ills resolved. We want restoration. We're unwilling to deal with reconciliation over here. We want society to fix things that we ourselves won't fix. In fact, I'm willing to bet most of us here right now, if that one person in your life were to walk in through these doors and sit on the other end of the church, you would look there and you would contemplate, if they start coming here, I may have to find another church. Let's be honest with ourselves. There's people in your life right now, they've wounded you so bad. They said something so hurtful and they've done things that was so horrendous. You refuse to make peace. Peace is not just the absence of conflicts because you have conflict right now. And while we'll get on our Facebook and our Twitter and our TikTok and we'll type all day long about how we need to solve this problem, cure that disease, go here or there, we're unwilling to sit down at Thanksgiving with that other side of the family. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's a lot harder work than it is than being a keyboard warrior, isn't it? It's a lot more difficult work. 
It's easy to tell your neighbor what they ought to do to solve the world's problems. Or if you had the power, which you would do with trillions of dollars in the federal budgets. A lot more difficult when you change churches because your feelings were hurt. When you went to a different job because you didn't like your boss. When you won't go to Fourth of July barbecue because your cousin's a weirdo. Blessed are peacemakers. I've never met anyone truly living the blessed life who is constantly looking at the next thing to be angry about. The proverb is true that misery loves company. That is true. Miserable people love miserable people. And the only thing that makes them happy is when non-miserable people can be brought down through their, 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 their view of things. But you will never find the blessed life there. The Christian needs to be leery of the amount of time we spend in endless debates and fights when we still haven't addressed real practical peacemaking. Do you model the grace of reconciliation? Do you promote healing or division? Do you seek peace or just want to be right all the time? Do you mend bridges or do you burn them? Are you ready for a good fight or do you get excited when you get to, you get to really tell them what you think? Are you a peacemaker? And in so doing, do you show mercy? Are you pure in heart? Do you starve for, for righteousness? Well, one of the things we've seen in these Beatitudes is, is the focus gets on the first line of each line. These, these are proverbial in the way they're written. And that's what we've done here this morning, isn't it? Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. But what we've seen is that these are the secrets to the blessed life. Can I prove it to you? Those who live by righteous virtue will forever be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. You see? I wish I could tell you that you can leave here today after a single service and all your problems will be resolved. I wish I could tell you that, that you can have this gummy bear and this gummy bear is going to give you the blessed life, whatever that might mean for you. But I can't. But I can tell you, if you will live a life of surrender to Jesus Christ risen from the dead, with a humbled faith, pursue righteous virtue, which you will find is the blessed life. It's not always easy, but it is freeing. And I would argue that to choose otherwise is significantly harder with a cursed life. So I don't know if you are here, what burdens you carry, what challenges you have faced, but I beg of you, you've never embraced Christ. Please today come with a humbled faith. Or maybe you're here and you have made decisions that you've tolerated these sins, tolerated not making these sort of decisions. I beg of you, would you come today and vow today is different from here on out. I make a life style decision to pursue Christ, to live with righteous virtue, and in the end, discover the blessed life. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to...